Hello. Welcome to episode 54 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing fine. I had a little bit of a break because it was fall break at one of my universities, and I got to see three movies in a theater. I've been going to the movie theaters a little more than I have been in recent weeks and months, and we're going to talk about two of them today. We both saw in a theater this time. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely been to the theater more times this October already than I had been in like the last 18 months, basically. And I'm, you know, going to go a few more times before the month is over. So uh, the first one we're going to be talking about is No Time to Die, the latest installment in the James Bond series, which I think this is like the 26th James Bond movie. Um, I think there's by... questioned about like what ones are official canon. Aren't <laughs> there some that are well, kind the, of... Yeah, there's the... Uh, uh, Diamonds, no, no. Which one is the uh, the non EMI Sean Connery? One? I can't remember. I'll think right. eventually. Uh, directed by Carrie Joji Fukunaga, director of Beasts of No Nation, Jane Eyre, and Sin Nombre, um, starring Daniel Craig, Rami Malik, and Leah Sadu. Uh, Bond, uh, the summary: Bond, who has retired from MI6, is recruited by an old friend to do a job for the CIA involving recovering a kidnapped scientist leading to the uncovering of a larger conspiracy involving figures from his past. Uh, this was initially scheduled for premiere in April 2020. It was like one of the first sort of victims of COVID, delayed to November 2020, and then finally scheduled for release in October 2021, uh, finally premiered October 8th, 2021, a Metacritic score of 68 and a Rotten Tomato score of 84. I guess sort of necessary before diving into the film itself is a little bit of a background on sort of our experiences with Daniel Craig's James Bond, seeing as this is his final foray in the Bond universe. I know you haven't seen a lot of the older James Bond movies, but you've seen all of the Daniel Craig ones, right? Correct. And I've seen all of them in a theater in their original release. The only ones I've seen outside of the Craig ones are the first one, Dr. No, and the third one, Goldfinger. And I should point out, even though this is just an audio podcast, that Carter has a framed picture <laughs> of Sean Connery, the original James Bond, at least the first theatrical James Bond, I think, wasn't there technically a TV movie of some kind? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, he had released, like, I think 20 novels in Fleming before the first Bond movie was made. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was adapted in the other mediums. I, I don't want to go off into a tangent, but I think one that is not an official canon. Have you ever seen the first Casino Royale film from the 60s? The comedy? Never the whole thing, but parts of it. It's, it's Peter really Sellers bad. in it, right? Oh, the cast. Orson Welles, Peter Sellers, Ursula Anders, George Raft, Woody Allen plays James, one of the James Bond. I mean, the cast goes on and on. It had like five different directors work on it. Uh, That's it's, never a good sign. It's a really bad mess of a movie but it's really worth watching because it's just uh it's a it's an interesting mess it's it's a really unsuccessful movie but i mean it, and it has... was officially adapted as the first daniel craig james bond movie Casino right Royale. and i will just say i am not an expert on james bond at all but i have seen all the daniel craig ones and i would put this in the five like right in the middle no time to die i mean i would pretty much I don't know. Skyfall might be the best, but it's Casino Royale and Skyfall. Then I would put No Time to Die 
then Spectre, and then the weakest and one of the worst movie titles of all time, Quantum of Solace. <laughs> um, but uh, would you say it's right about the middle for you of the ranking of the five? It's, I mean, it's it's weird. I, you didn't see any of the Pierce Bros and James Bond movies. I, I don't know if I saw all of them in theaters, but I definitely saw all of them. So Casino Royale was such a like change up from especially the two final Pierce Brosnan movies, which were like truly awful movies <laughs> and like the most ridiculous sort of excesses of the James Bond with the crazy technologies and the like uh, super marginalized Bond girls. So, I mean, I think Casino Royale will always sort of be regarded a different sort of light because it was like such a different sort of approach to the previous Bond movies. But um and more i skyfall gritty. yeah way more gritty uh you know bond is <laughs> pierce Brosnan is like such a sort of like uh upper class Cartoon. looking yeah well, cartoonish almost right it yeah, became yeah. outlandish He's, yes exactly and so it was i mean that was the sort of approach a lot of people were taking back then because of the born movies i think were a major influence on uh Casino when they Royale. went to the daniel when they went to the daniel Craig yeah ones. exactly yeah um and they sort of became a bit more stylish i guess as they went on and i think that really achieved its sort of like pinnacle with skyfall where you had sam mendes and roger deakins just like totally going all out with a huge budget on just making it like look as good as possible and then i think they got a little carried away with specter and sort of forgot about the plot and this one i think might have a little too much plot and it might be a little too long but i did enjoy it a lot and I thought it was a sort of fitting end for the Daniel Craig Bond series. Um, but yeah, I think right in the middle, sort of below Casino Royale and Skyfall is probably where it is for me. Yeah, I felt like it was refreshing to see a big action franchise movie that doesn't just seem consumed with CGI. It feels yeah. like real stunts, real locations. And I don't think the film has quite the mastery and cinematic bravado of some of the best set pieces in Casino Royale and Skyfall. It, it doesn't quite, it never quite astounded me with mm -hmm. any of the action scenes, but they were always diverting and entertaining and kept my attention. Even though the film's, I think, too long, I wasn't ever really bored by it. Yeah, I mean, there were parts where you could sort of feel that it was like slowing down and it was kind of like luxuriating and it's in the process of slowing down if you understand the last what I mean. act goes the last act goes on too long yes um and it, i mean it, it, i think it very much intentionally is like a little more of like a psychodrama than a typical james bond movie i mean this like doesn't resemble like the sort of silliness of a roger moore james bond at all it's like hard to even believe that they're part of the same franchise um there's some yeah, there's some humor in it and there's some kind of throwaway lines but mm -hmm. it's one of the more and like i said i'm not a big expert on james bond but it's certainly of the ones i've seen even compared to the other craig ones it's mm. much more emotional yes. and uh a psychological film than some of the other ones and i do think that 
the Rami Malik villain is kind of generic and in a somewhat fun way in the old fashioned like Dr. No, like they end up on an island. And (laughs) I mean, you were starting out by talking about the plot of the film. The plot is always like almost a a red herring or a a MacGuffin, really. It's just like, it's just an excuse to hang set pieces and action scenes Mm -hmm. on and to be in sexy locations and- And have really expensive sets (laughs) that look really cool. And, and and all of that is really enjoyable, but um, I think that when you have a film that's this long and mm-hmm. there are stretches of it that go without action, and it's not like we're Neanderthals and like there doesn't have to be an explosion every five <laughs> minutes, but it kind of treats the plot too seriously and yeah. it in, it's in, uh, you get in, engulfed with the plot. You, you, you get to much plot and it just gets boring i, I mean not I, I don't ever think i was bored by the film i think they get... kind of forget like why we're here like for a bond movie it's like to see you know people dressed up in like expensive clothes that look really beautiful and exotic locations and like a shootout every like few scenes and like that's why we see a bond movie it's not like the you know see like a family <laughs> drama right um, and i just think that uh there's really kind of at least three villains in the film and it gets mm-hmm. a little bit maybe we didn't need three villains yes uh and rami malik is good in the film and it's nice seeing christoph waltz again uh almost like a hannibal lecter like he's behind the glass and you can't it was you know, extremely don't... hannibal lecter <laughs> right and um i do think that it's interesting i mean this isn't like a spoiler but it's interesting watching the film and kind of the the evil plot and how it kind of made me think of COVID, even though it's not exactly Mm -hmm. the same. It's interesting. The film was going to come out, you know, in April of last year and then COVID happened. And I mean, can you kind of sum up a little bit of what's, can you (laughs) sum up the evil plot? It's uh, well, it starts off. Well, it doesn't start off, but sort of like 20 minutes into it, there's like a break in into a lab where it's like a government facility that's sort of off the books and they're working on, contagious viruses and like the bad guys steal a virus that is like actually made of like nanobots and it uh like goes inside of a person and once it's there it like never leaves and it can be fatal like specifically designed for people's dna i don't think that's too much of a spoiler to say that that's like the what the MacGuffin is because that's really not what it's about but the sort of specific dna aspect of it is like i guess what makes it so nefarious like there's a scene where all these people are targeted and they all die instantly um but i thought like the best part of it was the scene with anna de armas do you agree with that it was sort of like halfway through it it gave like a jolt to the movie that sort of like in the movie sort of rode like the after effects of that for like half an hour when not much else happened well, yeah, and her character is really kind of the closest it gets to a little bit more of the campion humor because mm-hmm. she's not the typical Bond girl. She's quirky and she's really <laughs> early in the job and she yes. doesn't really know exactly what she's doing, even though she's uh, pretty amazing keeping that dress on by kicking mm-hmm. ass. She's <laughs> swinging around and doing all these kind of balletic kicks and she has this very uh, beautiful dress and she never has a hair out of place uh-huh. so she balances being kind of uh un 
trained uh, in in the field. Very, she's unpolished. not great. Yeah, she's unpolished, but at the same time, she is very good at kicking ass and shooting and uh, in you know. Uh, but well, that I scene mean, that... specifically has been used heavily in the sort of promotion for the film. So I think that the studio very much thinks that's like a big selling point for it. And because I think she's not that... in it for very long. She's only in a small part of it. But it was it was nice to see because they had been in Knives Out together. So, I mean, they do have a chemistry, uh, Daniel Craig and uh, um, what's her name? <laughs> Leia Sadu. No, not Leia Sadu. The one who's in the very short seat. Uh, Anna de Armas. Sorry. Yeah, you just said her name. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, one thing I'm really interested in is that I think that a lot of people were kind of scratching their head, imagining her playing Meryl Monroe in mm-hmm. the upcoming biopic um, yes but uh you could kind of see her a little bit more i mean with yes. this performance i will say this is a tangent a little bit but have you heard about the controversy about blonde about netflix like not wanting to release it because yes. it supposedly it would like get an nc-17 rating that it's like really graphically sexual and dark yes but and apparently were- what's happened there's sort of like a negotiation and sort of what they agreed to is Netflix is not going to promote it. It's not going to send it to film festivals, but they will allow it to be released like the way the director wants it. So they're kind of burying it, but because it's on Netflix, it's sort of impossible to bury. So it's people will the, be able to see it. it it's directed Andrew by Dominic. Andrew. Yeah. did an assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And I mean, I would hope the movie would be like a great critical success. And if it is, why wouldn't they want to promote it, even if it's a rough movie? And- Maybe they're waiting for that. And like after, <laughs> but if I, you know, Netflix is a corporate America kind of deal. It's not quite Disney, but I mean, we can only imagine how hardcore this is going to be, but that is definitely a tangent. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, the cast has a number. One thing that's interesting is uh, they had some statistic about uh, all the, oscar winners that have played bond villains especially recently i know three of the five i think there's only been five and three of them have just been very recently javier bardem christoph waltz and rami malik i think the other only other two uh were christopher mickelson no he's never been nominated. oh no but he was just he was the bad guy in casino royale but yeah but uh, I think uh, christoph walken's one of you're talking about oscar nominees that winners play bond oh winners yeah Christ, uh, Christopher Walken. He's, he's in the 80s one with uh, um, Timothy, uh, whatever his name is. Forgotten Bond. Timothy Dalton, yeah. Yeah, I can, there's one other actor that's won an Oscar. Um, but uh, also, how many Jewish Bond villains have there been? Oh, I have no idea. One is Remy Malik Jewish? No. One that people may be surprised by is Yafet Kodo, the African-American actor that died not too long ago. He is Jew- He was Jewish. <laughs> He's the bad guy in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, I think. And then the very first one, Dr. No. Oh. Uh, what's his name? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, there have like been those. so many. Telly Savalas was a Bond villain. There have just been yeah. so many. I can't, I can't think of who the other Oscar winner was, but, but we digress. Anyway, sort no. of. You're an interesting person to sort of consider a Bond movie because you've seen so few. And this one seemed like very specifically like a kind of commentary on Bond's past. Like, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler because they've shown it in the previews that there's like a sort of female um, Bond equivalent who sort of replaced Daniel Craig's Bond who uh, literally I, takes his number, 007. Yeah. And I thought she was really excellent. I mean, not only is she a woman, but she's a black woman. And uh, I think her character's dialogue 
uh, was mostly written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who did Fleabag. She was like sort of brought in specifically to work on the female character's dialogue. And I wasn't sure if she was going to get an official credit, but she's listed as one of the four uh, writers for screenplay by including right. Carrie Joji Fukunaga. So I, don't I thought the to... female characters were really excellent. It was sort of intentionally giving them sort of more of a role than they would have had in previous Bond movies. Um, so. And it's not heavy handed. It's done no, it with isn't. kind of a sense of humor and an acknowledgement that, you know, uh, is this true? Is Daniel Craig in this film the oldest actor that's ever played Bond? Yes. I think the, uh, yeah. Well, even when Sean, even because Sean Connery and Roger Moore both played it into their late 50s. So, no, he's not. He's only 53. I think Roger Moore was 58 or 59 in his last one because he didn't start till he was uh, like late 40s. Um, So there is sort of a a tradition of older guys playing Bond. But I think Daniel Craig sort of wears his age a little differently than previous ones. Like he's not really trying to hide how old he is. I mean, he actually sort of plays into the age in an, in an interesting way where I think Roger Moore was, even when he was almost 60, was kind of playing a younger man in a strange sort of way. But it worked for sort of the silly campiness of a Roger Moore Bond movie. Which And, and this film, No Time to Die, I think more, like I said, I haven't seen a bunch of the older ones, but it seems like this is one of the most world-weary Bonds ever. Definitely. And oh, yeah. the weight of his past is really on him in all of the films really uh you know that it's not just this one but in quantum of solace uh there's been a lot of you know the films are not just kind of silly campy movies they're mm-hmm. they're uh emotionally rich dramas that have amazing yes. i mean there's certainly action films but there's real drama and and i think you know, you can debate about what's the best Bond and I shouldn't even comment because I haven't seen, but I think a lot of people have argued that it's hard to say that Daniel Craig isn't at least the best actor who's ever played Bond. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's this? probably fair. And especially because I think Sean Connery grew as an actor in his career. I think especially in the early Bond movies, he's very much still like a model who's just in a movie, just sort of like a handsome face, and, you know, like a sort of... Uh, impressive physique more than doing real acting and another sort of interesting thing about the craig ones is it acknowledges what happens in the previous movies much more than older bond movies did where it was sort of like each one was its own story and didn't really relate to what happened previously so uh, right now they they've often had there's been kind of overlaps when even the bonds are different like there were you know Judy Dench was in some of the Piers Brosnan ones, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, I wonder how, like, if Ray Fiennes and Ben Wishaw, you know, how many of them will be in the next one or whether they'll clean the slate completely and have a whole new cast. I imagine they're going to, like, clean the slate completely. Right. You had said something earlier about Edgar Wright appearing on a podcast and talking about how the different bonds sort of offer different yeah. things. I think the well, metaphor he yeah. used was dark chocolate and milk chocolate. Right. He argued that they go back and forth between you start with Sean Connery as like dark chocolate. And then the next one in line was Roger Moore. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that's like, no, well, George chocolate. Lazenby he only did one movie and then Connery came back and then more. So. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So it, it kind of goes back and forth between kind of the more gritty 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not necessarily gritty, but a, a more kind of refined. Dalton's are way grittier than Moore, so it definitely fits for that. And then Bronson's are just like totally ridiculous. Yeah. So Bronson is kind of the milk chocolate, and then yeah. Craig was a dark chocolate. Now he argues that there should be more of a milk chocolate bond in the sense that there have been names thrown out like Michael Fassbender or Tom Hardy. And he said mm-hmm. that those are fine actors and he could imagine them being great bonds, but they seem very similar to Daniel Craig. They mm-hmm. kind of, you know, they'd they be fit. operating in his lane. Right. And it would be interesting. I mean, I, since I don't have this big connection to the series, I am not particularly invested. The only thing is, and not to sound sexist, I don't think that it should be a woman in the sense that they should just make a movie like Atomic Blonde, like create a mm-hmm. James Bond like character and like start it, it, a new awesome series. It's like, mm-hmm. I think that James Bond, you know, I have no problem if he's black or he's another ethnicity, a different race, but it doesn't quite like it wouldn't be James Bond, like James Bond can be a different race, but if it's a mm-hmm. woman, it just so fundamentally changes the character. It's like, I think that they could have like the female character go off and do another film, but it would almost be like a spinoff movie because it's like, she, she's a great character, but I feel like James Bond should at least be a dude. <laughs> no, being... I, I agree. No, I think, you know, there's obviously spaces for female driven action movies. We're going to get one. I mean, you could argue Mad Max Fury Road is like Charlize Theron's character might be more of the main character than Tom yeah. Hardy's, to be honest. And, and the they're making prequel. a prequel to yeah. that with Anya Taylor-Joy, which they could easily, I could easily see them making sequels to that one. And so, I just want to throw out a little bit in the interview with Edgar Wright. It was on Happy, Sad, Confused. He said that like right before the pandemic hit, he showed George Miller last night in Soho and they had mm-hmm. dinner together and like the restaurant was almost deserted. And and uh george miller said that he is thinking of he was th- contemplating casting furiosa in the prequel and he said uh you know i'm thinking of possibly anya taylor joy i mean how is she to work with and egg Wright said she's the choice caster you should do it <laughs> and he said like i'm hoping for some residuals when the film comes out you know <laughs> so it was a little bit i think because the agency last, <laughs> i know like last night in soho uh you know yeah that she's being cast in furiosa uh, at least there was you know some sort of to physicality to her performance i guess yeah but i think her. that um yeah i mean i whoever's the next bond people will be thrilled about and will be upset about for whatever exactly reason, you know? but i mean it's one of those things where they're just like it's sort of a soap opera about like who the next one is and I don't know. It's in, I mean, this has to be the longest running film franchise, right? Like I can't think of anything that would come close. The first one came out in 1962, I think. So, you know, 60 years of Bond is crazy. So everyone's going to have their opinions because most people haven't seen at least one and they have their own idea of who James Bond should be. But um, right. I think that, um, you know, we, we mentioned the director and we mentioned the director. He also directed the first season of True Detective. Yes. And it would be really interesting. Well, and you know the backstory about who was going to direct this and Danny Boyle. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't want to go into spoilers, but I wonder how the film ends if that, if Danny Boyle was going to be even more kind of um, iconoclastic. Yeah. Like 
if, if it was going to be like kind of a shocking ending uh, or like it was going to be different from how it ends. Well, apparently it was creative differences that led to a departure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, 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 who would you like to see? I mean, even more than, cause I'm such an auteur person, <laughs> who would you like to see direct the next, like the new batch, like the, the, the first one of like swipe new bond. <sighs> I feel like Christopher Nolan has to do one eventually. Yeah. But I don't think he's the person to do like the first one of the next one. I think if you were going for. Well, he did Batman Begins, though. Yeah, but I think that's the reason you can't have him like kick off another because this will be Christopher Nolan's Bond. And I don't think the Bond producers necessarily, especially if he will only commit to one. Maybe if he were to make like a trilogy, he can kick it off. Um, And also, I'd be interested in having Nolan direct you know, like one of the sequels to the first new new Bond, because then that'll sort of be like Nolan being like a gun for hire in the sort of traditional Hollywood sense and making a movie for a studio that's part of a a running franchise. And I think that'd be interesting for him to do. But if they were going to make a sillier Bond, I think Phil Lord and Chris Miller would be interesting. Um, Yeah, but look what happened when they did Solo. They fired I know, but uh, maybe Eon Productions is a little more allowing of creative oh and they fired Danny Boyle so maybe they aren't than the Marvel franchise but they'd be interesting I'm sure they could do a really good one or Edgar um, Wright maybe Edgar Wright yeah yeah it's true I mean especially if it's a sort of more comics and he has such a good sense of film history I mean that's why and I like he, the Bond series because it's like you know a living sort of breathing connection to old Hollywood and everyone has their sort of spin on it one interesting point I saw was that Donald Trump was the first president in like 60 years to not have a Bond film come out while he was president. It was like, I think uh, JFK was the first one. And then every single president since then, because there's one, there's one at least wow. every four years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he didn't deserve one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see um, kind of a more, not necessarily comedic, but a little bit lighter embracing the silliness because bond is a silly character right he's very much like a relic and the way they did that with daniel craig is i don't think you can replicate that with another one unless you hire like you know a 50 plus year old bond so i think you'll have to sort of make it a little a different sort of spin and i think we're sort of moving into an area where you know, silliness in action movies is is very, very common. I mean, the net the next Netflix huge movie is one with like The Rock and Ryan Reynolds playing like spies in a very sort of silly uh big budget spy movie. So I don't know, maybe they'll just do something like that. But sort and of I final th- words, what do you think? Like three out of five? Sorry. I would I would give it three and a half out of five. Oh. Um, and I think I was just going to mention last comment. I think that one of the criticisms that people have had with DC versus Marvel is that, you know, some of the Zack Snyder films were just so dour and yes. pretentious and that when you, you know, whether people like the specific films or not, but like uh, Wonder Woman, especially something like Aquaman and Shazam, they had much more of a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I feel like people are you know it's like nolan does it so masterfully having him be as grounded and quote-unquote realistic as you could be for a comic book movie but you kind of need someone like nolan to pull it off yeah and, you know when you have a Zack snyder it sometimes <laughs> just gets kind of thudding and yes overwrought well and those are extremely repetitive like <clears throat> everyone sort of feels the same um yeah. 
Are we uh, surprised that Michael Bay has never done a James Bond movie? Uh, he's just too American, isn't he? Hasn't I there mean, been? There have been American directors, but like he's you know such like <laughs> he's such an American. Like right. I think Kerry Joji Fukunaga <clears throat> obviously isn't English, but I think he's a little more worldly and international than, than right. Michael Bay. Um, Michael Bay has Six Underground. That's his Bond movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he has a new one coming out. The trailer was just released recently with Jake Gyllenhaal. Wow. Yeah, I've never, seen, I've never seen a Michael Bay film. Uh, you might like The Rock. I've heard people say if you have to watch one. And you know what's crazy is the first Transformers film has a 61 on Metacritic, which is the lowest green rating, which is well, kind of surprising. That, that one is very much like a director for hire, Michael Bay. I don't think that's like totally Michael Bay off the leash because I think Steven Spielberg produced that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so it, but, that was very much like a producer-driven movie. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm not putting out in the universe that I want Michael Bay to, to, <laughs> to the direct next the next one. No, but I would give the, Ryan Reynolds. I would give No Time to Die uh, three and a half out of five, and I, it, it's one of those where I would not necessarily go. You have to run out and see in theater and see this, yeah. but it's a movie you very much would want to see in a theater if you were going to see it. Yes, because I mean, one of my favorite parts of the Bond movies is just like seeing really beautiful foreign locations that are extremely well shot on a big screen. And this has got a ton of that. So I think three out of five, maybe four. I th- it's it's not a perfect movie. It's not a bad movie, but I, I did like it. And I think it was a really good ending to the Daniel Craig James Bond series. I mean, um, I, I think part of my kind of slight disappointment in the movie is that to me, Casino Royale and Skyfall are like two of the very best franchise, big action movies mm-hmm. of this century so far. Like they are like like superb examples up there with Mad Max Fury Road um, of and Gravity of like you can do a big special effects action franchise sequel. You can do those movies. Well, the Matt Reeves and, Apes movies are definitely. Yeah, I put those up there too. I that they can be good works of art and i think no time to die has they're also the, the movie there's never been an r-rated james bond film but they're there's just they're adult they feel like they're not yeah. insulting the intelligence of the audience yes i mean they can be campy and they can be kind of silly in a way even this one as serious and emotional and it is there you know there is you know the the villain's plot is kind of silly <laughs> Uh, yes well and it's but, one of those classic like every inflaming bad guy has to have some sort of physical disfiguration and this very much keeps up with that which right. i apparently people were upset by like having somebody severely scarred be evil it's like that's just a bond movie right. <laughs> that's one trope. of the reasons it's super day it's exactly it's a trope like it's just something that like you expect in it but right. moving on to the next movie uh, uh can last- i make a weird connection sure you were talking about how a female writer was brought on yes. to write uh, dialogue for uh, a the female character characters, and this film I think very much was that too. So, uh, what is it? Who directed it? Wrote it? Starred in it? Uh, it is the last duel, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Nicole Holof Center, who's uh, sort of a independent filmmaker brought in by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon reuniting for the first time since Goodwill Hunting. Um, 
Ridley Scott has also directed Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, has another movie coming out this year, House of Gucci. Um, he is still turning out movies even while he's in his 80s. Starring Matt Damon, uh, Ben Affleck, Adam Driver, and Jodie Comer. It is about a knight in 14th century France who challenges an old friend turned enemy to a duel after the knight's wife accuses the former friend of rape. We then see the events leading up to and the aftermath of the accused assault from each person's point of view. It premiered September 10th at the Venice Film Festival and was released wide October 15th. Um, a Metacritic score of 67 and a Rotten Tomato score of 85. Um, this one I don't think was delayed by COVID. Um, it's one of those few that wasn't. I think it sort of finished production right before COVID started, but um, I don't think so. I remember seeing behind the scenes footage of people wearing masks. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So maybe the, it was one of those ones I was stopped midway through, but um, I like this movie. I really liked it. I was actually impressed by um, how like uh, I wouldn't say economical the filmmaking was, but I like I thought the battle scenes were like <laughs> really well done by really scott and actually the sort of like internal drama of it the sort of like smaller quieter scenes were actually really well executed too so the thing that i sort of took away from this was like really scott is still like pretty good at making movies even as at his age and i was sort of worried about that because alien covenant a movie we saw together was was not really really bad but it certainly was not among the like better alien movies and right. i i hadn't seen all the money in the world or what was the other one that came out a few years ago? Well, he had, it's interesting, he had Alien Covenant and All the Money in the World both come out in 2017, and he has two films coming out okay. this year. Um, but yeah, I he's actually one of the directors that I've seen the most films by in a theater in their original release. This is my ninth film oh, wow. I've seen of his, and I will be up to 10 next month. Uh, <laughs> and next month, he also turns 84. Wow. Um, but... I, I I did a little bit of homework, I want to say, uh, really? to prepare for this movie. I uh, had two of his movies on Blu-ray that I had not seen. I watched his first feature film, The Duelists, which is based on a Joseph Conrad story, The Duel, and it stars Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel. And, Said Napoleonic era of France. Right, and it's about how bullheaded men could be uh, and still are uh, and they fight Harvey Keitel challenges Keith Carradine to a duel basically because he delivers him a message he doesn't like and they spend many many years continually dueling and they keep doing it over the years and <laughs> over um, thousands of miles and it's <laughs> right um, and I, I thought it was um, it very much reminded me in some ways of uh, Barry Lyndon mm -hmm. came out right around the same time um his, the film he did right before alien and i i thought that was quite good um and then i saw the director's cut of kingdom of heaven had you not have, seen that no oh, wow. i had not seen it and um i had not i had no frame of reference to the original but it was one that was cut by like 45 minutes yes and um yeah i mean he knows how to do big battle scenes and people swinging swords and uh and mixing it with intimate character moments and yes. um the main criticism i have of the film is that i'll quote the film critic mark kermode is that it stars orlando bland 
Uh, oh, I you're talking Bloom. about Kingdom of Heaven. <laughs> yeah, Kingdom of Heaven. Orlando Bloom is uh, a very attractive uh Well, speaking that... of Barry Lyndon, that very much reeks of the uh, Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon, where you have to have a box office draw to make this. And well, Orlando Bloom was right coming off Pirates of the Caribbean and Lord of the Rings. So he was about as big of a star as you could find in 2004. Okay, I want to go off on a little tangent. You know the Hollywood reporter roundtables where they have mm-hmm. like actors and directors directors there's, on directors and stuff right. like that there's one that i really like that has uh steve mcqueen jason reitman alexander payne those are three of the directors and the, the interviewer asks one question about what is a what makes a good director and they talk about well you know some are really great with actors some are really good technicians and the interviewer brings up the point that he thinks that Kubrick was a brilliant technical director but there are some really bad performances in some mm-hmm. of his films he argued he said for example Ryan O'Neill is horribly miscast in Barry Lyndon and um, Alexander Payne says I disagree with you. And then Steve McQueen goes, I, I totally disagree with you. You're, <laughs> you're completely wrong. And he said that, uh, and Jason Reitman says that the fact that Ryan O'Neill is kind of out of his element mm-hmm. perfectly fits Barry Lyndon and that he is a con artist. And the fact that he's mm-hmm. like this pretty boy, you know, got me actor, love, love story actor. And the, and, and uh, Steve McQueen says, it's like uh, the, the same year the movies were out, uh, Drive came out and he says, it's like Ryan Gosling and Drive. It's like, mm-hmm. there's this kind of this blankness to his face and you can project your own feelings and thoughts onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think Ryan O'Neill is not the greatest actor, but he is kind of wonderful in Barry Lyndon. No, but I think time. there was a thing where the studios like gave like the top 10 box office actors and like pick one of these because that's the only way we'll finance it. And Kubrick selected Ryan O'Neill, but I think it was. It could have been a... Robert Redford. Exactly. Like one yeah. of the other ones. But I will say that I think um, Orlando Bloom it, uh, is kind of a bland actor. Um, he's not like a terrible actor, but. You just wish that, like, Adam Driver is a great actor. Yes, yes. Matt Damon's a really good actor. And I think, I mean, Ben, I would argue Ben Affleck's actually a better director than he is an actor, but he's a fine actor. I mean, he's not, I think, in the same league as, uh, you know, but Adam Driver, I mean, I was looking at his IMDb. Like, I've seen about 18 movies in a theater in their original release. Like, people, like, the, the list of directors that Adam Driver has worked with, like, Oh, it's, uh, it's insane. Yeah, it's like he was in J. Edgar, <laughs> J. Edgar by Clint Eastwood. He's in Lincoln Lewin Davis. Yeah, Spielberg, Coen Brothers. He's been in uh, Terry Gilliam's the, finally made the Don Quixote film. Uh-huh. He's been in Steven Soderbergh. He's Noah been Baumbach. In Jim Charmush. He's uh, Spike Lee. Uh, yeah, multiple films by Noah Baumbach. Uh, it's just like crazy how many people he's... No, I uh, think he's got a legitimate claim to being like maybe like the best actor working in hollywood today right I mean, and i think that um what I, we should mention uh actually talk about the last duel a little bit now um, yes. <laughs> the, that it i think it very much um in many ways it's like rashomon the yes shirt. i think that's you sort of can out but reference rashomon when you're talking about the last duel for anyone who hasn't seen it rashomon was a japanese movie directed by akira kurosawa that came out in the early 1950s and for a lot of americans was like the first taste of foreign cinema that they got and, and the certainly narrative... from japan post-war yes, exactly and yeah. the narrative is about 
uh, a sexual assault, right? Similarly yeah, that's another connection story. it has. Yes. It's and it about, gives the perspective yeah. of the victim, of the perpetrator, and also the deceased husband of the victim. They like yeah. call him back as a ghost. Um, and it's 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 like 90 minutes, right? I remember it being really it's under short. 90 minutes. Yeah, it's yeah, right so under. That's a difference uh, to the last duel. Right. Uh, the last duel is two hours and 32 minutes. Um, I wasn't ever bored by this movie. No, I either. wasn't either. Um, but I think that we were talking before we started recording about how this movie has quite a budget. It's not really an action movie, even no. though there's action scenes in it i mean there is the titular there's an action scene duel. very early on also but they're very um, brief yes yeah. it's much more of a character and the climax drama. is a huge sort of set piece action scene that right. goes but on even for like that, 10 minutes yeah but uh but for a movie that's two hours and 32 minutes very little of the film has any most has, of it's just yeah. people talking right and but people sort of taking slights or interpreting things, maybe the not the way that the other person intended it to be taken and stuff like that. So it was, I mean, quiet moments make up a huge part of this movie. And uh, it's there. So the film is told from three different perspectives and you see scenes repeated, but not only for example, there's differences in that the dialogue may be the same, but the, Mm -hmm the speaker is different yeah right yeah the way it's said it makes it different and also there's same moments happening but the way it happens exactly is different for example Mm. um you know it's not a spoiler because we said it it's about um a woman being raped and in uh the version that adam driver's character gives she leaves her shoes on the stairs going up to her bedroom and very purposefully takes off her slippers right and in her version she's like running up getting away from a man she she is worried will assault her Mm -hmm. and she is very much just her shoes come off in the flight to get up the stairs and so in his version even in his version it's very much clear that he rapes her but it's not quite as horrendous and you don't see it from her perspective, how yes. much she's suffering. And um, I, and there's little moments where you get one side of the story and then you see the other perspective. And by seeing the two, you understand, oh, well, when that happened, this is what was really going on. Well, I thought, I thought uh, Matt Damon gave a really interesting performance for the three different perspectives because his character is so different in each one. His characters is the first one we're privileged to where he's very much the hero and everything he's doing is for the right reason and everything he's doing is heroic and we understand why he fails because there was a reason for his failure and he couldn't help but that this thing happened and all he could do was be as brave as he could and then when we see that from Adam Driver's perspective it's like a calamity and when we see it from his wife's perspective he's like a barbarian so I thought he gave one of his better performances I've seen in a long time actually. And right. doing so with a giant scar on his face and one of the most hideous mullets I've ever seen. <laughs> right. I and, and then Ben Affleck's just chewing the scenery and having yes. fun. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that back in this time period they had ever used the F word, but he does in the film. Well, it's one of those ones where, you know, it's set in France, but they speak in English, except for one time a guy sings a song in French, which I thought was interesting. So like, why did he just sing it in English? Because that makes me confused. But I, right. I, they would have said merde, which, you know, shit, fuck, 
I think that's a word they would have used back then. I don't know if the English would have used that word, but I'm sure the French were cursing with, with those words back then. But he's playing uh, very much, he's having fun with his performance. Yes. Ben Affleck. And he was, I think he was originally supposed to play the Adam Driver role, but he sort of acknowledged that he was a bit too old for the part and took this secondary role that's also quite important and he gets a lot of really good lines and he definitely gets to be like the funniest in what is like otherwise a very serious movie he's like legitimately funny in this movie. yeah i liked it when matt damon's character gets on his knee and he says closer get closer no. <laughs> um but yeah and i had never seen i looked up on imd i had never seen jody comer in anything i think she's best known for being in the very the tv uh, show killing eve yes right uh, uh, had you ever seen her in anything before? Um, uh, I don't think I'd actually ever seen her, but I was like very much aware of Killing Eve. And, you know, I'd seen the trailers for Free Guy, which she's also in the Ryan Reynolds movie that came out last summer. But no, I don't think I'd ever actually seen her in anything. And I was, Guy, I was yeah. hugely impressed by Jodie Comer in this movie. I think yeah. I would not say- be surprised if she got a uh, Best Actress nomination. I was going to say, did you say Free Guy came out last summer? It came out like no, yeah, a few weeks ago. Yeah. yeah did I yeah. say last summer? I'm not sure. But yeah. I, last I, summer might have been July because we're in a right. different season. <laughs> yeah. You know, and time is so weird these exactly. days. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Last Duel is interesting how, you know, it's from the director of Gladiator yes. and Kingdom of Heaven, but it has that that the the setting you know that not not necessarily the exact but the same kind of you know sword it's, it's much smaller tights. in scope though i think than both of those it is right. like a period piece and it involves battles and you know, castles and, and stuff and, like yeah. that but um it's a lot i mean gladiator is such like a straight revenge piece like i don't think we hear his wife or his child really even say anything their characters aren't fleshed out at all they're literally just there so maximus can have something to revenge and then kingdom of heaven is like so focused on the big picture that orlando's bloom character doesn't really have much of a personality so i think this one actually is much better at like the characters and making us sort of see their it has a much stronger point of view especially in regards to the characters in those two movies and in some ways i think it's it's actually better than Gladiator. It's much less of a spectacle and, you know, it's much, much less action driven, but I think it, I think in some ways it is a better movie than Gladiator. Um, would you agree hey, with that? Gladiator is a film I have seen so long ago that I really yeah. don't feel justified. And uh, giving an opinion on it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I remember enjoying it, but I also, you know, I, I didn't see it when it came. I was too yeah. young, but I, I remember kind of it's one of the and i don't think you should judge a movie for this but like this one best picture you know it's like not that yes good. yeah um i don't even know what else was that year but uh i do think that the last duel is not like the, i just haven't seen nearly as many movies in this year and last year but um to me it's like a really solid like four out of five stars but mm-hmm. it isn't like um incredibly profound it's just like like the father or something like that would totally blows you away no it's just it's well acted and it's well written and i think that we're talking about the writing so nicole hall center is a very interesting choice because she's best known for writing these indie comedy dramas very talky right yeah very much like a you know woody allen 
Albert Brooks, um, you know, uh, Richard Linklater. Rich, well, relationship dramas. You know, she did Enough Said with Julie Louis Dreyfus and was James Gandolfini, uh, one of his last movies. And um, she was recently Oscar nominated for being one of the screenwriters. She did not direct this film, but she was one of the screenwriters of Can You Ever Forgive Me, the Melissa mm-hmm. McCarthy film. So, uh, but all the films she's done before were comedies and, and contemporary. Is- said right. like in the modern well, world <laughs> well can you ever forgive me as a little bit of a period yeah. piece, but but not it's said not, in like the late 80s right no one's riding and horses with armor <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah it's a film, world we can recognize right. similar to our own well this yeah. is and this actually makes sort of a point of just like how different uh everyone's life was back in and sort of how like much the church would have been involved like there's the scene of their wedding night where like the priests are like, you know, throwing holy water on the bed and stuff like that. So it was, it was very good in depicting the sort of period details. Um, And also how little women were considered how, even when you hear about her being raped, it's almost, you know, she's almost in, she's talked about in terms like, uh, being a piece of property or a connection to the land well that yeah that's part of it is yeah. that she can't actually bring legal proceedings against her her rapist her husband has to do it because it's a property law consideration and not like a personal grievance or like bodily harm issue it's like literally a property issue right oh we i don't think we want to go into spoilers but mm-hmm. afterwards the i saw it with two family friends and uh the woman had, I saw it with, I saw, I saw a couple with a couple, she had uh, a very interesting take about what really went on about. Um, I'll just say that she said that I was almost expecting there to be a fourth version of the story told from the mother's point of view. Played by Sean word. Phillips, I, I believe, who's well-known uh, theater actor um, and had been in, the all i claudius bbc adaptation i think yeah i'll I'll just seen her in anything that's what you'd see her in i'll just say that i don't want to get go too much into spoilers but she's a very cold character and does not have much sympathy for jodie comer's character but uh my friend was had this interpretation that she kind of had more to do with what happens than perhaps oh think (laughs) that her choices she makes were deliberate and perhaps even organized somewhat. Oh man, I, that's a very interesting take. And um, upon also, seeing the movie, I hope that uh, the audience will be as intrigued by that take as I am. <laughs> and the other point I think I want to make without giving away anything spoiler territory is in the last duel, what ends up happening, why it happens, mm-hmm. what what motivates the characters to say what they do and who ends up, you know, being victorious i think is an interesting take given what the punishment is yes for what happens so i don't want to go i don't want to go into spoilers but we will talk about it after we finish recording yeah Uh, well not a spoiler but i thought the final climactic battle scene was like sensational oh it's gnarly too Uh, (laughs) yes i thought it was incredible and the uh, amount of like two hour buildup we have to it made the stakes so high that it, it was one of the more gripped I've been by an action scene and like maybe since Mad Max Fury Road, like the final scene of that. Um, and I'll just say that um, what happens to one of the characters is significant what happens to him 
as mm-hmm. in what part of his body. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. You're spoiler. <laughs> no, no, but what happened, it, where this person is wounded is yes. very significant about the idea of telling the truth and lying. Yes. You know what I'm saying, right? Yes. Yeah, it, it has a gnarly death. It's, yes. That may or may not happen in the film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that the film is like a really solid four stars yes. um, out of five is what I'd give it. But I'm it, it even we were saying before, too, that before the pandemic, I think this movie had even though it's not a huge like action spectacle, like nearly in the way Gladiator or Kingdom of Heaven yeah. are. But I think it had like a hundred million dollar budget or something. I think it's like two hundred. Like it's maybe one hundred fifty. It's it's really big. I mean, you can see the cost while you're watching it because like right they're using like real castles and stuff like that yeah i mean that's one of the things uh, along with no time to die it, it i mean i'm sure there was a ton of cgi in it but it doesn't look like it's no. just it, it's not like you know you look watch a marvel movie and you're like okay like there's like a tiny part of a face that's actually there right now when you, you can know. see how artificial the sets are especially in like a tv a show like loki one of the marvel which you know they spend a lot of money on but it just looks so artificial well I mean, the last one never looked artificial and uh, like, it really sort of immersed you in 14th century France, which, I mean, this movie has been sort of a notorious bomb already. So maybe audiences don't want to be immersed in 14th century France, but, um, I, you know, it takes star power like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and a attached director like Ridley Scott to get that, that sort of backing. But I but mean, I, it, it is I, sort I, of like a failure. So we may right. not see movies like this in the future. I mean, I just think, too, that, you know, you shouldn't really judge for two movies, but I don't think Stillwater did too well at the box office, and that was Matt Damon, and there was controversy because of some things he said in the press. Well, that was, he, like, heavily promoted that as well, so. Right, Um, he was on, like, pod, you know, a bunch of podcasts and television interviews, and, yeah, I mean, uh, I... I don't know. You can't just read something on Twitter and believe it. But I, I think part of the problem is that this is a Fox movie and Disney is just kind of pushing Fox out and kind of, I think yeah. they're trying to kill it. The last Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life, yeah, really did not get released in as many theaters uh, as it should have. I had to drive to Atlanta to see it. And Who do you think Disney's like occupying all of the theater space? Well, and they, they're just like... I think that Fox may not be a studio. Yeah. After a while, I mean, no, I it mean, makes me. They're really putting the you know clutches. The, you know, they're really controlling. You know, the film is only in theaters, which you know. Yeah, this argue. is one of the few studios that isn't doing the simultaneous releases. Yeah, I mean, we've got and one coming watch. out this week with Dune, which is like a very big movie that's getting the simultaneous Band-Aid. theater, yeah, yeah streaming yeah. release. I mean, I was hearing one film critic, I don't know if he was being sincere or not, but he is not going out like hardly at all because of the pandemic. Um, He's over 50 and he was saying that he's going to be traveling, but being safe uh, when Dune's going to be released. So I'm watching on a laptop and I was just like, it's just (laughs) like, you shouldn't even review it then. Like you're not really seeing. Well, you should review it for people watching it on a laptop. I mean, I've heard people say that, you know, if you're going to see one film in a theater and especially like IMAX, like well, especially to give it, it a fair shot, like, yeah, because it like it's, you know, a Denis Villeneuve movie. So I can assume it's going to treat its audience with a certain amount of respect and, um, you know, not 
you know, give you the sort of like uh, formula. Oh, here's another action scene after 10 minutes to keep you interested kind of deal. So obviously you're going to be less focused on it if you're not in a theater because there are so many distractions. So it's a little bit disrespectful. I mean, I could almost imagine uh, if people were watching The Last Duel at home, it's like, oh, we've watched episode one, 30, 40 (laughs) minutes, and they would just break into three parts. But the power, part of the power of the movie is watching it as one work. Oh, man, I was so excited for the third version when I was halfway through the second. (laughs) Yeah. So I I can't wait to see what her point of view is. And I think that... um, you know, there, there, there is benefits to miniseries and television series, but there's also something about even a film that's a little over two and a half hours long about it being a yeah. contained work. Like it's like, even if it's long, it's like a bullet, like a film goes. Yeah. And it has, a and this middle- one really does. Like it's, there's not a lot of scenes that like feel like they're unnecessary. Like right. everything seems like it's building towards, you know, the outcome of the story. Right. And-, and even though it's uh, two hours and 32 minutes, it's almost like, three short films yeah it's like there's kind of a you know not not that the movie like feels like it's 85 minutes but yeah. it does kind of you know it, it i was not bored by i would say i was even more engaged with this than the bond film even no i bond was films, much more action. because you had a sort of active role as a participant because of the nature of three different stories that required you to pay attention and notice the differences and sort of on the go sort of interpret like how these different scenes from each person's point of view would be different so uh, it was it very much engaged the audience and sort of like worked your brain as you were watching it so i very much appreciated that and it's depressing that i think that's maybe one reason the film people don't want to see it (laughs) yeah it's like well i understand two people have said like oh so there's this two hour and 32 minute you know period piece about rape that we see you know three different times even though you don't really you don't see it in the first I, i've seen people like say like a graphic rape sequence which i don't know what reviews are saying that but i mean the sequence is obviously like troublesome and disturbing but it's, it's not, not irreversible though it's yeah, not the last house not, on the left exactly it's not graphic it's not like i mean you don't even see nudity in the movie no you don't so yeah. I don't know where this sort of graphic depiction is right coming i remember from. I, I don't want this i won't even this isn't a spoiler for another movie, but I remember uh, Leonard Malton said about Promising Young Woman that it mm-hmm. had an ending that was so uh, upsetting that he almost had to look away. And I was expecting it to go into like hostile Quentin Tarantino territory. Yeah. And it's like an upsetting ending, but it's like not violent. Like, well, I mean, it's violent, but it's not yeah. like I was but also expecting... it's it makes sense for what the movie's about. Like, yeah, it's... I was expecting to see like someone get castrated on screen. Yeah. Or, like, you know, and it's not, you know, it's no. I, but um, yeah. So and that's last... a little bit troubling, like, because especially considering like the whole Me Too movement and we're supposed to sort of listen to people's stories about sexual assault for people to be sort of off put by that. I, I think it's sort of I think it's a bit strange. It's like, shouldn't this be something? we should be sort of trying to hear people's perspectives and like understand the victim. Why? I don't know why you should be so disturbed by hearing the victim's side. So uh, I, 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 I don't want to get into spoilers either, but the third section, the title, how it's revealed. Yes, significant. yes definitely. And, and I, I let out like an audible, Ooh, <laughs> when yeah. that happened in the movie theater <laughs> right we, we, i feel like we're kind of talking around some parts of the movie because we don't want to dig into spoilers yes. but yeah so um i think we both really recommend this right 
yeah i um ridley scott has not had a great uh i you know i actually like some of his movies in recent years more than like i actually like the counselor i did too <laughs> yeah um that got it, really bad reviews yeah. um yeah written the i think it's the first and so far only film actually written by cormac mccarthy original screenplay yeah um and an amazing cast uh, yes but um yeah and i actually kind of quite like another period piece film of his um i actually quite liked his robin hood film with russell crowe um i actually remember i i, I saw it when it came well, out that's got I, a really good oscar isaac performance in it as king john right um so uh yeah it's it's ridley scott's one of those that's uh you know is very eclectic because alien and blade runner and yeah. then you have things like the duelist and kingdom of heaven and robin hood thelma and louise yeah but then you have thelma and louise gi jane american gangster the martian I'll, I'll say this uh in closing i thought that it was really cool bringing up once again the hollywood reporter roundtables they had one uh when he was there for promoting the martian and one of the early questions was what was the most difficult aspect of making your film? And they said, uh, Ridley Scott, and he goes, well, it wasn't difficult. Just got the people together and did it. <laughs> and it's like this technical Marvel with this big cast and like it's on earth and it's huge cast, moon. like a I bunch know. of different storylines and stuff like yeah, that. And, and I just loved it. It's like, he was like, you know, nearing 80 when he made that movie and he just very nonchalantly and then he said, well, just got the people together and did it. You know, it wasn't hard. <laughs> I'm know. a director. It's my job. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> he's just one of those, um, you know, he he really is like a lot of his movies are you know genre movies, science fiction yeah. and action and thriller and yeah, I'm I'm uh, certainly looking forward to. I mean, talking about good cast, House of Gucci has yeah. like five or six Oscar winners or nominee. Adam Driver's coming back. You have Lady Gaga, Oscar winner, yeah, for music. Uh, Jeremy Irons, who was in Kingdom of Heaven, who he's worked with, has um, Al Pacino. Has I don't think Pacino's ever been in a. Really no, he movie. hasn't. This is it's for yeah. part of Pacino's reemergence post Irish. Jared Let Jared Leto Oscar winner Sama Hayek. But Oscar this is nominee. this is one of those ones. I mean, you know, I like a movie if I like I get home and I like watch all the interviews and press conferences, and I I watch like a decent amount of those, and I was surprised Adam Driver wasn't in any of them. I guess that was sort of like the deal, like you're in it, but you don't have to have any media responsibilities. But I I really was curious to sort of hear. Um, his perspective on his his performance so i was upset that he didn't do any any media for this well i don't know uh if this had anything to do with it i mean i've certainly seen him on talk shows before but did you uh remember when he was on npr promoting marriage story and mm -hmm. he's like almost like phobic about like watching himself or even hearing himself uh -huh. and they played a clip and he walked oh out i do remember that yeah yeah um and uh maybe, maybe he just doesn't do press since then really yeah i mean i remember i've he was he's been on colbert before and you know yeah. he's certainly you know i've seen him in person before i saw him at the new york film festival screening of patterson mm -hmm. um but uh yeah it's it's a no, we haven't really talked about him in this but he's he's really really good and, right i mean makes very good use of his like sort of physicality and um, he is a very charismatic actor and that's yeah. sort of important to his character because I mean there has to be there has to be at least a suspicion that like you know maybe they were in a relationship like maybe it wasn't a rape and he does a really good job at at sort of making that seem as unlikely as maybe it might be that like that is a possibility because he is extremely charismatic and 
in his version of the story like he he portrays himself as like a really great guy <laughs> so right. i thought he was really good in this right and he certainly um yeah it, adam not that this is significant but he's not typically robert redford Ryan O'Neill, att- attractive but he i think that really works for this character he has this real ruggedness yeah to him and he is very attractive and i think that but he um, is ripped i mean he's yeah. got a couple shirtless scenes and i'm just like holy shit this guy's ripped <laughs> right do you ever i mean one of um, my friend is not one who like talks about a movie but she did lean over to me early on in the movie and said whenever i watch movies like this i always imagine what would it be smelling like all the time? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially like Matt Damon's character. You can't imagine he's too hygienic. <laughs> I know. I, I just, uh, they. I know they, you know, I don't think they even had toilet paper. No, that's why they had so much incense back then. They I know. They an overpowering scent. <laughs> I mean, in Benedetta, the lesbian nun film that Paul Verhoeven did, there's a scene where you have the nuns, nuns shitting next to each other on like the toilet and they just take some straw and wipe themselves with <laughs> it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's horrible. Everyone's just got rashes. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So well, I don't, I, should... both of these were good. I think yeah. both I good, yeah, let's not, big budget. Let's not end with shitting nuns wiping no. their ass with straw. So but, uh, we've got a lot of good stuff coming out. I think we're both going to see Dune in the next week or so. So we'll definitely be reviewing that. Um, I've seen the Velvet Underground movie that is on Apple TV Plus. I think Jonathan is waiting to see that in theaters. So we possibly could review that next I, I recommend that to anyone who has apple tv plus and i think french dispatch is coming out next weekend is that right it's timothy chalamet has two films coming out friday but it's very limited release oh, okay uh this friday but um yeah that uh, like i've joked with wes anderson it has like every actor that was ever in one of his movies and then he chill me adds like five new ones <laughs> yeah this one is like 40 <laughs> Yeah, and it's uh, has a connection. To, isn't both uh, Jeffrey Wright and Leah Sadu in this? Yes. They were both in No Time to Die. Yep. Um, but and then uh, the entire cast of The Last Duel is in it. <laughs> no, not they don't have any of those. No, actors, no. <laughs> um, but I do. Yeah, I, I very much want to see uh, Dune in IMAX, and yes. um, I don't want to go. But I was just say that I uh, myself, I have Carter hasn't seen it, but I really recommend the documentary The Rescue. I yes and that is I, that is playing in like not only sort of like la and new york i think it is yeah i saw playing it in, in most places south carolina yeah. but it played one week i was the only person in the theater and it's leaving but um see that's one of the things with the streaming is like i have no idea how long these things are in theaters anymore they used to be in theaters for you know like at least three months but i think the window is just getting shorter and shorter so well i mean the it's it, it just makes me sad when I go to a movie and there's some junk that's play- like, I have no, I'm not calling it junk. I haven't seen it, but I have no desire to see Halloween kills, but it's doing really good at the box office. Oh, is it? Yeah. And that's really also good. one that's available on streaming. I think it's on Peacock. Yeah. But it's amazing how well that's doing given yeah. it has a 42 on Metacritic. Well, that's not surprising. People will go see slasher movies. No matter yeah, what go movies. see a horror movie the, in October. But, it's like money in the, the bank. Fa- but the fact that it's on Peacock, it's interesting that it's done so well at the box yeah. office. Um, but I have no interest in seeing it. I mean, I, I I wanted to see the James Bond film. I saw it in IMAX and I saw main reason is Ridley Scott. I'm kind of a completist with certain directors. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'd, you know, this is now my ninth film I've seen of his. What's it's your favorite? Be 10 soon. Yeah, what's your favorite, favorite Ridley, Ridley Scott, Scott movie? Oh, shit. 
Um, you know what? I'll just wait uh, while you're thinking. It's really interesting that you know, Duelist, really well reviewed film. Not a lot of people saw it, but well reviewed yeah. film. Alien, amazing. Blade Runner, amazing. And then he made like ten films in a row that like nobody talks about. He yeah. does like Black Rain and fourteen ninety two. I know. And, um, you know, it's like he has Thelma and Louise, you know, but there's like not yeah. 10 literally, but there's like he did many films in a row that like are in the 80s that people just do not talk about. And I think I have sure. to say Blade Runner. Yeah, it's so amazing. Me too. Yeah. I love Alien. He's too, got but... such good visual sense and it's yeah, it's got to be Blade Runner. That's like that's like the one that will be written on his tombstone when he dies. Blade Runner. Right. But um, we but, yeah. recommend The Last Duel. Yeah, uh, and still, still has in this great month of movies. We've still got uh, Last Night in Soho. We've got Dune. We've got French Dispatch. And I think there's some other ones. And uh, I'll say I've already seen it. Uh, the The Souvenir Part Two comes out uh, October 29th, which is one of the there very best films. I saw it at the New York Film Festival. A24 is releasing it. Really, and then really we worth. get Spencer early November. Right. Well, I'll just say uh, for people listening, if you have not watched the original souvenir you should because the yes. sequel's coming out <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you won't want to miss out but yeah, yeah thank you for listening uh we'll probably be back in a few weeks I, this was a the shortest gap between episodes for quite some time so hopefully we'll have another two weeks before the next one because you've got such good stuff coming out but thank you for listening uh we'll be back with you guys next time <laughs>